I'm Andrew Blumenfeld. This is Money in Politics. My guest today combines a host of really interesting perspectives about fundraising. I'm excited to talk to him about all of those. His name is Daquan Love. He serves as the political director of the North Carolina Democratic Party House Caucus, and he has most recently served before that as the caucus deputy finance director. Um, Now, House caucuses can sometimes feel a bit mysterious, I think, but in a lot of states, they play a hugely important role in state legislative campaigns. So in my conversation today with Daquan, I'm hoping he can help shed some light on all of it. But beyond his current role, Daquan also has run for office himself, and he has served as a finance director on some major campaigns. So I'm sure he has some great insights to share about those experiences as well. But first, a quick message from Call Time AI. You're listening to Money in Politics, brought to you by Call Time AI. Campaigning is hard. Why not make fundraising easy? Using automation and artificial intelligence, Call Time AI lets you fundraise five times faster with easy-to-use tools like instant donor research, automated voicemail drop, and donor scoring, so that you are always calling the right person at the right time with the right ask. Go online to calltime.ai to schedule a demo and start your free trial today. So I'm here now with Daquan Love. Uh, Thank you so much for being here today, Daquan. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, well, I'm excited to chat with you. But before we get too deep into our conversation, let's start with sharing with folks a little bit about you and yourself. Can you tell us a little bit about your background, how you found your way into politics? Absolutely. Sure. So after college, I moved to North Carolina. I was a teacher for a year. Long story short, I moved in with my best friend who lived in rural North Carolina in a in Duplin County. And so I moved to Duplin. I was commuting to Raleigh for my graduate studies. And I decided that I wanted to run for office. And so I ran for office. Um, The impediment for that was my representative at the time, it said in December of 2017, on the floor of the General Assembly, that he was so grateful to God for the Great Recession of 2008. He was grateful because it forced North Carolina to become, as he called, more fiscally conservative. And that struck a chord with me simply because of the fact, you know, my family, we, all, we nearly lost my family home in the Great Recession, as so many families across America did. And so I, I looked him up. I found out that he hadn't ran, he hadn't had any serious opposition since he was first elected. And I said that if not me, then who? And so I decided to run for office. I ran for state house. I was the youngest candidate of color that cycle running for North Carolina House. And it was a very, very long, very productive campaign. We came out of the primary very strong and we raised a little over $107,000, which may not sound like a lot in terms of you know political fundraising, but in a district that President Trump took by 63% of the vote, we were able to raise that amount in addition to outperforming our governor as well as Hillary Clinton and those scores in that district. So that we did have some wins there. After that, I finished my graduate degree because I was in graduate school during that campaign. And, you know, I really enjoy campaigning. Um, I got an invitation to go to something called Arena Academy in Des Moines, Iowa, which is one of their first uh, academies. And I picked the campaign finance director track. They said, what do you want to do? You know, field, organizing, campaign manager, finance director. I said, well, you know, when I ran, the hardest thing for me as a, at that time, a 25-year-old, you know, African-American candidate in rural North Carolina, the hardest thing for me was fundraising. So I said, oh, I'll do the fundraising track. So I did finance training, 
for a week there. I love Arena Academy. They're awesome. And they taught me everything I needed to know. And so literally, I left that academy and I went on to manage a congressional race in a special election here in North Carolina for the primary. I was Ike Johnson's um, campaign manager. We didn't win that primary, but in that, I think it was a five or six-way primary, the fact that I love sharing is that we outraised an incumbent mayor. I used that training, got to work. We lost the primary, but I was asked to be the finance director for the gentleman who won the primary on the Democratic side, Alan Thomas of Greenville. And then after that summer, towards the end of the election, I was asked by some folks to come in, be the finance director for Ghazala Hashmi in Virginia. And so I moved to Virginia, which is home for me, um, moved back at home with family in Richmond. And we elected the first Muslim woman to the Virginia Senate. And between August and November of that year, I was on that campaign. We raised a little over two and a half million dollars. That was actually the, the DLCC's top targeted race last year. And so after that, I was asked to come to work uh, back here in North Carolina, to work here at the caucus. And I'm so glad that I did. Uh, Representative Greg Meyer asked me to come. He was super supportive during my race. And I said, you know, I'll come. I interviewed, got the job. And so from December to the end of May of this year, I was the deputy finance director for the House Caucus. And in June, I was promoted to political director. So that's a lot, but that's how I got here. And I'm, I'm glad. Well, and I'm especially impressed that your experience with fundraising in your own campaign and identifying that as something that was really important and a real challenge led you to dive even more deeply into that. I think that's a really good sign <laughs> because there's obviously a lot of folks who have a lot of friction with fundraising and their response to it is to be more averse and to isolate themselves further and further from it. But obviously it's so core to campaigns is making sure you have the resources that you need to run a successful campaign. So definitely commend you for seeing seeing that as something that you were hoping to, you know, get get uh, more acquainted with rather than less and then and then kind of showing that once you become more acquainted with it you can really you can really do some amazing things with it as you've pointed out. I mean, you've really helped effectuate some big change in such a short period of time and it all started with you saying, "Hey, I got to I want to learn more about this campaign finance stuff at that Arena Academy." So that's great. Yeah. I I will say that fundraising was very intimidating at first. I'm the first person in my family to go to college, so I don't come from a lot of money. And it's really exposed me to, you know, a class of people that, you know, I would not have otherwise been exposed to. But it has been extremely helpful because I've, I now have a different perspective in how I look at campaigns and how I'm able to support, especially our candidates of color and our rural candidates, which are my heart. Well, let's actually talk a little bit more about that then, because as you mentioned, uh, you've spent some time now at the North Carolina Democratic Party House Caucus. And there's probably a lot of people, even people who are listening to this, who are quite uh, well familiar with a lot of the things that go on in our political system, and even a lot of the things that go on in the the finance side of our political system that may not know a ton about the role of the caucuses. So why don't we, as a baseline, start off by just sharing with me, sharing with folks listening, what is the role of the House caucus? How, what kind of role does it play in, in the life of candidates and in campaigns in the fundraising you know, realm, but also beyond? Sure. So I think it's first important to note that every caucus is different. So some state legislative caucuses do just campaigns. Some some caucuses primarily just support members and don't have as much involvement in campaigns. Here in North Carolina, our House caucus has three primary roles. One, recruitment, recruiting candidates to run and supporting them. 
Second is targeting, which is our way of the caucus providing direct investment and support to the candidates and the districts that we know we need to win in order to reach the caucus's goals. Our goal this year is to flip the state legislature to blue and to Democrats. And the third is retention which means making sure that the members that we do have get to stay in office, right? And so we do more than just campaigns. Here in North Carolina, our caucus, and as a political director, I support our candidates um, and our and our members, especially during the General Assembly, and making sure that they have the tools and resources needed so that they can effectively communicate to their constituencies, as well as making sure that they can communicate with external stakeholders who can be helpful in their election efforts, but moreover in accomplishing their respective agendas. As it relates to campaigns, I will say that there seems to be like a mystique <laughs> that caucuses <laughs> seem to have, like, oh, oh, this, you know, uh, and I've dealt with folks who from all over the spectrum, some folks will say, oh, I'm so scared of the caucus. I don't know what, what's going on or, you know, what they do. And other folks ask us for everything under the sun. The role that I see the caucus playing and the role that I try to play in North Carolina with our candidates is to be their support system. We want to be their validator. We want to be the folks that help guide their race along so that they're able to mount successful data-driven best practice campaigns. And how about the fundraising side of things? So does the caucus do a lot of fundraising? Specifically in North Carolina, you made the point that they're different in different states, which uh, I've definitely heard a lot about. And But in North Carolina, the the fundraising piece of it, does the caucus tend to support campaigns in their own fundraising apparatus? Is it going out there and funding fundraising on behalf of campaigns? Sort of what's what's that relationship look like? That's a great question. In my experience, a lot of folks think that the caucus is here to write checks to campaigns <laughs> and that, you know, we raise money and we provide every candidate with a check. Now some caucus programs operate like that. We've taken a more data-driven approach to our investments. And this cycle, what we have done, instead of as much direct investments, the caucus has tried to take on those costs directly. So you'll find that, and something that we're very proud of is the fact that our top targeted races, those managers are caucus staff, right? So that removes the candidates from having to worry about HR and paperwork and that sort of thing. But it also allows us to live out our values and make sure that we can give every manager health insurance and and those other benefits, which we're excited. Some things that candidates may not be able to afford, you know, on a targeted race budget, right? Additionally, of course, we support in paid communications and in consultants and making sure that we can connect those races to consultants. The advice that I would give to candidates, especially if you are not a targeted race or you're unsure if you're targeted race by the caucus, is to have open and honest dialogue and communication. The candidates that have come to us that say, hey, here's where I'm, I am. I'd love to meet you halfway. How can the caucus be supportive? You know, that goes better than... Um, just coming out with a, you know, a hand out asking for, you know, direct support. If obviously we'd love to, to support every race, but that's not the most efficient use of our donors dollars. And so we, we have to be mindful of that. Of course. Yeah. And actually speaking of your donors dollars, you of course are doing fundraising for the caucus so that you can make these purchasing decisions and make some direct investments and whatnot. So can you tell us a little bit about from your experience of you've fundraised for yourself as a candidate, you've helped fundraise uh, as a staffer on someone else's on, on other folks campaign. 
and now you help fundraise and have spent some good time fundraising for the caucus. How does that look different across those different situations? What's it like fundraising on behalf of a caucus? Is the pitch different? Is the kind of donors you're going after after different? Absolutely. It's much more challenging. I have to say that. Fundraising for caucus is very different than a campaign because on a campaign, you're selling a candidate. You have a you have a figurehead, you have someone who you can go out and sell. But instead of selling a candidate, we're selling a strategy. Right here, right now, we're selling the idea that we, ha- we have the ability to flip the legislature by six seats that'll give us a majority in the state house and what that would mean. We do a lot more issue-based fundraising with uh, some of our external partners and trying to identify groups with similar goals that match our values and our platform and encouraging those those groups uh, to support the caucus directly. We find that that sometimes can be easier for those groups because then they don't have to pick and choose which candidates to endorse or to provide direct contributions to. They can just give and invest in, in the caucus. We do, uh, additionally, here in North Carolina, which is something we're really excited about, is that we actually do support our candidates and we help them raise money. So one of the most exciting parts of my previous role was the fact that I got to work directly with candidates and their managers in fundraising strategy. We, we're we not in the business of you know leaving folks out to dry. We want our candidates to raise money, which is why we're excited that, you know, we recently announced that, you know, 99% of our top targeted races ended, you know, the June 30th quarter in the mid-year report with over $100,000 cash on hand going into the summer, which is historic. It's uh, it's amazing, especially for some of our first-time candidates, our candidates of color, and our rural candidates. So supporting those those candidates with fundraising training is helpful. In terms of the advice that I would give to maybe candidates or staffers on a state legislative race, your caucus is going to be there to provide you with support and guidance and help you identify the roadmap. And it's your job to just to implement that. Understanding and knowing those fundraising best practices and implementing them is going to get you a long way. Yeah, that's really refreshing to hear. I certainly know some states, I won't name names, (laughs) where it feels sometimes, and I certainly understand that they're resource constrained and there's only so much they can do, but it sometimes feels like the relationship is a little bit more like uh, kind of everyone's, everyone's on their own every person for themselves and and sort of maybe we'll pick off one or two that are really important to us. And kind of once you've proven yourself to us as worthy of our attention, we'll go all in on you. It's it's nice to hear a philosophy that is much more engaged throughout the whole process, as you mentioned earlier, even as early as recruit, recruiting, but also kind of nurturing and guidance and providing support, letting people do for themselves what they can do for themselves and just kind of giving them the structure. And then as you point out, to the extent there are races that are targeted priority of the caucus and are part of that bigger strategy, you know, then getting more, more hands-on and and more in-depth. But I I think it would be comforting for a lot of candidates. And I also think a lot of would-be candidates to to hear that if they take the leap, if they want to do this, that uh, whether it's fundraising strategy or elsewhere, they, they're not, they're not on their own. There, there, there is a network and a mechanism. So that, that's really nice to hear. If I could also add there, the number one roadblock or challenge that I find with candidates, especially first-time candidates in terms of working with a caucus structure is mindset. I like to, I always tell candidates the first time I have a conversation with them, I say, you know, when you go to your dentist, do you tell your dentist, 
how to fix your teeth. They're like, no. When you go to get your car and your oil changed, do you tell the technician, you know, how and the process to change the oil? Most candidates will say no. We get a few who like to be a little smart and say, well, I changed my own oil. But (laughs) the point that I try to present there is that if you have a mindset of understanding that the caucus is one, here to help you, and two, recognizing the professional expertise, because, and I know this as a former candidate, and I regret a lot of the decisions that I made because I just didn't value the professional expertise of the professionals who studied political science and have been ingrained in campaigns for many, many years, even more than me now. And by coming in with a mindset of learning and and wanting to implement best practices, those are the campaigns that I see in both targeted and non-targeted districts that do the absolute best. And they do better than, than those other races. And it's because they're following best practices. One of the things that I distinctly remember, which was a major roadblock for me as a candidate, was that I always knew or thought in my mind, oh, well, that doesn't apply to this district. That doesn't apply to my situation. These folks don't know what they're talking about. They don't know my community. They don't know the type of people who I'm working with. They don't know my volunteer base. They don't know what to do. And so I need to go out and recreate the wheel in terms of fundraising in order to be successful. Now, being creative, did that help? Somewhat. But I'll I'll tell you now, as a former candidate, now as a professional fundraiser, that if I had just listened to the people who gave me the advice the first time, which was sit in a call time room at home with all all the folks that you know on your Rolodex and dial and ask and ask and ask, you know, I feel like my, you know, election may have turned out a little bit more, a little bit differently. And that being said, that's the biggest thing. When you, when you're working with a caucus program, have an open mindset and and a level of understanding the professional expertise that that folks bring. Now, I'll be honest with you. Obviously, every caucus is different. Every single staffer is different. We all have our own biases and and things that we deal with. But understand and try to get to know those caucus staffers on a personal level. Try to engage with them and also recognize, especially like if you're in the lower chamber of a caucus, for example, we're dealing with, you know, 116 candidates. It's a lot. So it definitely can be a bit of a challenge in terms of building relationships with all of those candidates and trying to foster meaningful support. But if you can get on their radar, ask them for support and be be very respectful and understanding their professional expertise that they bring to the table, I found that those candidates tend to do a lot better than otherwise. So switching gears a little bit, because you do spend so much time with candidates in your role at the, at the caucus, I'm just curious, especially right now with all that is going on in North Carolina, in the country, even in the world, and also all that's at stake in November, <laughs> what has your experience been like watching these campaigns manage their fundraising and manage their campaigns more generally through all this tumult and also in preparation for such a high stakes election in November. Any observations just as as someone who is situated sort of at the center of so many legislative campaigns? Absolutely. So the first thing is all of our races have moved to virtual events. We've done some very specific trainings in supporting them. The other thing I'd say is that 
aside from moving to virtual events, not much more has changed. We still know that we've got to raise money. Candidates got to do call time. And we've got to push our candidates to do that. Fundraising best practices are tried and true. Call time, call time, call time. Even with our digital fundraising, that has amped up a little bit, but not in a a way that I find is statistically significant. And so the one key thing I'd share with your listeners is that there's no magic bullet. There's no creative, exciting new phenomenon that's going to extremely change your strategy. You just got to do the best practices, which is call time, Rolodexing, having your events, moving them to virtual, sending out direct mail, and and having a strong online presence. Yeah. Well, let me also add a little bit of a, for, for those who are listening and are hearing call time and and all that um, a lot of times in Rolodexing and maybe are are more or less familiar with that. I also think that at the end of the day, and you definitely, you know, push back if you disagree, but fundraising is just ultimately about relationships and, and building and growing and nurturing relationships and helping those relationships find their way towards supporting your campaign. For fundraising, it's financial support. For volunteers, it could be other things. For voting, it's obviously voting. And so, uh, you know, call time is is a practice that is tried and true, but it's not because it itself is also all that magical. It's really, it's just because it's just the practice of getting on the phone and building those relationships, making those asks, right? And so to your point, it's interesting, you know, you definitely hear a lot of people opine about how much has changed in the era of COVID and all that's going on in our country. And I think from like a message perspective, and certainly from some practical kind of remote work perspective, there's definitely some very serious changes. And and no doubt the kinds of interactions you're having with people are probably influenced because of how affected some people are by the health crisis, the economic crisis, the the injustices everyone is wrestling with. But to your point, at the end of the day, you got to raise money. And how do you raise money? You build relationships and you, you, you help those relationships find their way towards financial support of your campaign. So it's interesting to hear that perspective, but it makes, it certainly makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. And making direct asks, you know, that's the number one challenge I found with first time candidates. Even I struggled with that at, at first making that hard ask, making that direct ask, making that specific ask, and then shutting up. Right, right. <laughs> I, I'm going to actually take two seconds to pause on that because you're not our first guest who has made that comment before and I haven't commented on it because I sort of take for granted people know what that means, but I'm going to call it out for those that don't. This is so important to just let the person answer you, right? <laughs> to give someone an opportunity to respond to your ask and not do that. Oh, and I hope you can give me a thousand dollars. It's if that's too much, maybe it could be less. And, uh, you know, we're doing so well. And I think that obviously you're, I mean, they just talk themselves right through and it's like, you know, you just ask them for a thousand dollars. Just, just give them a moment. Let them think about it. Let them give you a response. That I will say is as close to magic as exists in fundraising is just give them a moment to answer you. (laughs) No. And and I'll say, you know, fairly briefly, like, when you're on the call or you're making any type of an ask, make the ask, be direct, make that hard ask, be quiet. The very first person who talks next loses. And <laughs> I'll tell you, I'll tell you this quick story if I may. So for end of quarter, our campaign managers for our, uh, some of our targeted races thought it would be funny if they had all of their candidates call all of the caucus staff. And they did this for call time, right? And they did this in succession, right? So they'd call the executive director, then they called the deputy executive director, then they called me. 
And all of the candidates, it was like, this was some pre-planned rotation where they're just going to keep calling. So I got a call from one candidate, then a call from another candidate. And it just kept going. It was like too many candidates calling me, right? But the funniest thing was the candidates that made a direct ask and they were silent for a little bit because I, I let it, you know, go a little, of course, go, go a little long. It. Absolutely. <laughs> <Yeah>. Absolutely. <laughs> the candidates that waited, they got something out of me. The candidates that, that broke that silence, they didn't get as much. much. They didn't yeah. get as much. Um, and this is the same for, for folks. You know, I tell people, tried and true best practices. After you make that hard ask, be quiet. The next person <laughs> that talks loses. <laughs> Plain and simple. And I, I know it, it sounds really weird. It sounds cliche, especially if you, you're not familiar with the concept. But trust me, in practice, it works. Oh, yeah. No, I've definitely seen it. Well, let me sort of turn to a final point, which is just kind of zooming out a little bit from the individual candidate experience and best practices and whatnot. And just to the state of North Carolina, it's clearly going to continue to be a major focal point in 2020 for all sorts of reasons. The potential to flip the legislature, obviously critically as a swing state, the Senate seat that is up there that we feel is part of our path to retaking the U.S. Senate. So it's definitely sort of a center of gravity in North Carolina this cycle. Just as someone who has worked extensively there, run for office there, now run, you know, helping uh, all these campaigns throughout the state there. Just any predictions you want to share? Anything that you think we all as watchers of this should be paying attention to that maybe we're not yet? Just curious about your kind of like a pundit hat on for a second about North Carolina 2020. Sure. So what should we be looking for in North Carolina? I'd say this. This year's elections are obviously going to be very highly contested. I'd be looking at the governor's race. And the reason I say that is because that seems to be the best indication right now of how folks will be voting and how they'll be turning out down ballot. We've got a long ballot in North Carolina. We've got, of course, the presidential vice presidential races. You also have a U.S. Senate race. Cal Cunningham is our Democratic nominee. And then we have our Council of States, our governor, our lieutenant governor. They run separately here in North Carolina. And then all the other, you know, Commissioner of Agriculture and Superintendent of Instruction. We have so many folks on Council of State. And then, of course, we can't forget the judges. So we all have all of our judges up for election or re-election this year. Then the State Senate, State House, and then your county local and municipal offices. There are some places in North Carolina where the state house candidates are going to be on the second page of the ballot. So ballot drop-off is really like a fear, right? Especially understanding that many of our folks this year are going to be taking advantage of absentee ballots. We have no no excuse early voting um, here in North Carolina. Absentee ballots are a part of that process. I'd say look at the governor's race. That's going to help us under, uh, understand h- how folks are looking locally as opposed to federally with the Senate race with Cal Cunningham. But I'll, I'll say this too. The predictions I, I have, I definitely predict that we're going to reclaim the House um, for Democrats. I think that uh, based upon the strategy that, that I have as a political director and, and our team has, I think that we we may be able to pick up some seats that folks aren't thinking we'll be able to. Obviously, there's so much dependent on that and so much can change between now and the election. We know that our candidates as Democrats are running on issues that are pocketbook and kitchen table issues, fully funding our public schools here in North Carolina, as well as expanding Medicaid, which is super important. Oklahomans just 
I, I believe uh, they passed a, a referendum and they were able to get expand Medicaid at the ballot box recently. And we need to do that here in North Carolina, you know, rather than expanding Medicaid or doing any, any type of Medicaid expansion, you know, the Republicans and Raleigh have, you know, just twiddled their thumbs, even in the midst of this global pandemic. And so the hardworking families of North Carolina know that the House Democrats are focused on fully funding our public schools, expanding Medicaid, and making a North Carolina economy that works for everyone, not just a select few. So we're keeping the issues local, we're keeping our eyes on the prize. But the other thing is this, we're focused on spending strategically and making smart investment decisions so that we can um, flip the chamber for Democrats. So there's one last point I want to share, if you don't mind, with your listeners. Please do. Yeah, yeah. Just want to remind folks, especially if you're a candidate or a staffer, keep it simple. Don't get caught up in the hype right now in this hyper-partisan and hyper-consultant-driven era. There's so many folks out here trying to sell fool's gold, right? There's a lot of apps that you can get. There's a lot of consultants that'll promise you the world. But I, I tell folks, make sure that you're buying a tool and you're not buying a, a strategy. So make sure that you, if you're looking at products, if you're looking at consultants, look at the ROI. Don't get too caught up on you know the minor details. Think about how is this going to actually help me raise money? And if it's not going to do that, then I wouldn't necessarily focus on that. But make sure that you are focus on that because there are so many folks I'm sure you know being in this industry they'll sell you a pipe dream any day especially those consultants uh, so well, I would say you know fundraising whether it's you're paying for a staff person or you're paying for a software whatever you're paying for in fundraising that should be the easiest thing to analyze whether or not it's a good investment because you can actually measure the return right I mean it's hard when you're voting it's you won't know till election day necessarily if it yielded the votes you were looking for or even persuasion it's hard to know you know unless you're constantly polling or surveying exactly if things are moving in the direction that you wanted to after you put the resources behind the TV ad behind the mail piece behind the, the the newspaper ad. But money, I mean, that should be pretty simple. You know, if you spent $100 this month on fundraising, you better have at least raised 100 bucks on fundraising. But gosh, if that's all you raise, then that's a, that's a lousy investment, right? Uh, but but certainly, it's got to be more than you're spending and uh, and hopefully a lot more than you're spending. And, and if it's not, you have some rethinking to do. <laughs> yeah, and there's some good tools and good resources out there. Build a f- good, strong fundraising program. You, you shouldn't be spending any, anything more than 10% on fundraising costs anyway. And make sure you have a prospectus. That's the other thing too. A lot of first-time candidates I find don't have that. Make sure you put together a one-page, two-page prospectus and follow up with folks and you'll be good to go. Terrific. Well, this has been fantastic. I know, uh, especially for those that are running or those that are thinking about running, this has been, I'm sure, a very helpful conversation. And uh, and for those of us who just work in and around political fundraising, it's always fun to hear about the way the different entities around the country are doing great work to help campaigns and help important causes. So thanks for all you do. Thanks for the work that you've put in with the caucus. I think North Carolina is a state to watch, you know, uh, no breaking news here, but I think really exciting stuff happening there. And it's been really great talking to you about it. So thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much. And you can definitely check me out on Twitter at Daquan Love at uh, D-A-Q-U-A-N-L-O-V-E. Love to have you join the conversation there. Awesome. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. All right. Take care. Stay up to date with the latest fundraising trends, forecasts, and advice by going to the Call Time AI blog at www.calltime.ai. And follow us on Twitter at Call Time AI.